0: Section 30 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. to 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1907, Part 6. In foreign affairs, this country's steady policy— is to behave toward other nations as a strong and self-respecting man should behave toward the other men with whom he is brought into contact in other words our aim is disinterestedly to help other nations where such help can be wisely given without the appearance of meddling with what does not concern us to be careful to act as a good neighbor and at the same time in good-natured fashion to make it evident that we do not intend to be imposed upon. The Second International Peace Conference was convened at The Hague on the 15th of June last, and remained in session until the 18th of October. For the first time, the representatives of practically all the civilized countries of the world, united in a temperate and kindly discussion, of the methods by which the causes of war might be narrowed and its injurious effects reduced. Although the agreements reached in the conference did not in any direction go to the length hoped for by the more sanguine, yet in many directions important steps were taken, and upon every subject on the program there was such full and considerate discussion as to justify the belief that substantial progress has been made toward further agreements in the future. Thirteen conventions were agreed upon, embodying the definite conclusions which have been reached, and resolutions were adopted marking the progress made, in matters upon which agreement was not yet sufficiently complete to make conventions practicable. THE DELEGATES OF THE UNITED STATES WERE INSTRUCTED TO FAVOR AN AGREEMENT FOR OBLIGATORY ARBITRATION, THE ESTABLISHMENT OF A PERMANENT COURT OF ARBITRATION, TO PROCEED JUDICIALLY IN THE HEARING AND DECISION OF INTERNATIONAL CAUSES THE PROHIBITION OF FORCE FOR THE COLLECTION OF CONTRACT DEBTS, ALLEGED TO BE DUE FROM GOVERNMENTS TO CITIZENS OF OTHER COUNTRIES, UNTIL AFTER ARBITRATION AS TO THE JUSTICE, and amount of the debt, and the time and manner of payment, the immunity of private property at sea, the better definition of the rights of neutrals, and in any case and measure to that end should be introduced, the limitation of armaments. In the field of peaceful disposal of international differences, several important advances were made. First, as to the obligatory arbitration. Although the conference failed to secure a unanimous agreement upon the details of a convention for obligatory arbitration, it did resolve as follows. It is unanimous, one, in accepting the principle for obligatory arbitration, two, in declaring that certain differences, and notably those relating to the interpretation and application of international conventional stipulations, are susceptible of being submitted to obligatory arbitration without any restriction. In view of the fact that, as a result of the discussion, the vote upon the definite Treaty of Obligatory Arbitration, which was proposed, stood 32 in favor to 9 against the adoption of the treaty, there can be little doubt that the great majority of the countries of the world have reached a point where they are now ready to apply practically THE PRINCIPLES THUS UNANIMOUSLY AGREED UPON BY THE CONFERENCE. THE SECOND ADVANCE, AND A VERY GREAT ONE, IS THE AGREEMENT WHICH RELATES TO THE USE OF FORCE FOR THE COLLECTION OF CONTRACT DEBTS. YOUR ATTENTION IS invited TO THE PARAGRAPHS UPON THIS SUBJECT AND MY MESSAGE OF DECEMBER 1906, AND TO THE RESOLUTION OF THE THIRD AMERICAN CONFERENCE AT RIO IN THE SUMMER OF 1906. The convention upon this subject adopted by the Conference, substantially as proposed by the American delegates, is as follows. In order to avoid between nations armed conflicts of a purely pecuniary origin arising from contractual debts, claimed of the government of one country, by the government of another country to be due to its nationals, the signatory powers agree not to have recourse to armed force for the collection of such contractual debts. However, this stipulation shall not be applicable where the debtor state refuses or leaves unanswered an offer to arbitrate, or, in case of acceptance, makes it impossible to formulate the terms of submission, or, after arbitration, fails to comply with the award rendered. It is further agreed that arbitration here contemplated shall be in conformity, as to procedure, with Chapter 3 of the Convention for the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes adopted at the Hague, and that it shall determine, in so far as there shall be no agreement between the parties, the justice and the amount of the debt, the time and mode of payment thereof. Such a provision. Would have prevented much injustice and extortion in the past, and I cannot doubt that its effect in the future will be most salutary. A third advance has been made in amending and perfecting the Convention of 1899 for the voluntary settlement of international disputes, and particularly the extension of those parts of that convention which relate to commissions of inquiry. The existence of those provisions enabled the governments of Great Britain and Russia to avoid war, notwithstanding the great public excitement at the time of the Dogger Bank incident, and the new convention agreed upon by the conference gives practical effect to the experience gained in that inquiry. Substantial progress was also made towards the creation of a permanent judicial tribunal for the determination of international causes, There was very full discussion of the proposal for such a court, and a general agreement was finally reached in favor of its creation. The conference recommended to the signatory powers the adoption of a draft upon which it agreed for the organization of the court, leaving to be determined only the method by which the judges should be selected. This remaining unsettled question is plainly one which time and good temper will solve. A further agreement of the first importance was that for the creation of an international prize court. The constitution, organization, and procedure of such a tribunal were provided for in detail. Anyone who recalls the injustices under which this country suffered as a neutral power during the early part of the last century cannot fail to see in this provision, for an international prize court, the great advance which the world is making toward the substitution of the rule of reason and justice, in place of simple force. Not only will the international prize court be the means of protecting the interests of neutrals, but it is in itself a step towards the creation of the more general court, for the hearing of international controversies to which reference has just been made. The organization and action of such a prize court cannot fail to accustom the different countries to the submission of international questions to the decision of an international tribunal, and we may confidently expect the results of such submission to bring about a general agreement upon the enlargement of the practice numerous provisions were adopted for reducing the evil effects of war and for defining the rights and duties of neutrals. The conference also provided for the holding of a third conference within a period similar to that which elapsed between the first and second conferences. The delegates of the United States worthily represented the spirit of the American people and maintained with fidelity and ability the policy of our government upon all the great questions discussed in the conference. The report of the delegation, together with authenticated copies of the Convention signed, when received, will be laid before the Senate for its consideration. When we remember how difficult it is for one of our own legislative bodies, composed of citizens of the same country, speaking the same language, living under the same laws and having the same customs, to reach an agreement— or even to secure a majority upon any difficult and important subject which is proposed for legislation, it becomes plain that the representatives of forty-five different countries, speaking many different languages accustomed to different methods of procedure, with widely diverse interests, who discussed so many different subjects, and reached agreements upon so many, are entitled to grateful appreciation for the wisdom, patience, and moderation with which they have discharged their duty. The example of this temperate discussion, and the agreements and the efforts to agree among representatives of all the nations of the earth, acting with universal recognition of the supreme obligation to promote peace, cannot fail to be a powerful influence for good in future international relations. A year ago, in consequence of a revolutionary movement in Cuba, which threatened the immediate return to chaos of the island, the United States intervened, sending down an army and establishing a provisional government under Governor Magoon. Absolute quiet and prosperity have returned to the island because of this action. We are now taking steps to provide for elections in the island, and our expectation is within the coming year to be able to turn the island over again to government chosen by the people thereof. Cuba is at our doors. It is not possible that this nation should permit Cuba again to sink into the condition from which we rescued it. All that we ask of the Cuban people is that they be prosperous that they govern themselves so as to bring content, order, and progress to their island, the Queen of the Antilles, and our only interference has been and will be to help them achieve these results. An invitation has been extended by Japan to the government and people of the United States to participate in a great national exposition to be held at Tokyo from April 1st to October 31st 1912, and in which the principal countries of the world are to be invited to take part. This is an occasion of special interest to all the nations of the world, and peculiarly so to us, for it is the first instance in which such a great national exposition has been held by a great power dwelling on the Pacific, and all the nations of Europe and America. Will, I trust, join in helping to success this first great exposition ever held by a great nation of Asia. The geographical relations of Japan and the United States, as the possessors of such large portions of the coasts of the Pacific, the intimate trade relations already existing between the two countries, the warm friendship which has been maintained between them without break, since the opening of Japan to intercourse with the Western nations, and her increasing wealth and production, which we regard with hearty goodwill, and wish to make the occasion of mutually beneficial commerce, all unite in making it eminently desirable that this invitation should be accepted, I heartily recommend such legislation as will provide in generous fashion for the representation of this government and its people in the proposed exposition. Action should be taken now. We are apt to underestimate the time necessary for preparation in such cases. The invitation to the French Exposition of 1900 was brought to the attention of the Congress by President Cleveland in December of 1895. And so many are the delays necessary to such proceedings that the period of four years and a half which then intervened before the exposition proved none too long for the proper preparation of the exhibits. The adoption of a new tariff by Germany, accompanied by conventions for reciprocal tariff concessions between that country and most of the other countries of continental Europe, led the German government to give the notice necessary to terminate the reciprocal commercial agreement with this country, proclaimed July 13, 1900. The notice was to take effect on the 1st of March 1906, and in default of some other arrangements, this would have left the exports from the United States to Germany subject to the general German tariff duties, from 25 to 50 percent higher. the conventional duties imposed upon the goods of most of our competitors for German trade. Under a special agreement made between the two governments in February of 1906, the German government postponed the operation of their notice until the 30th of June 1907. In the meantime, deeming it to be my duty to make every possible effort to prevent a tariff war between the United States and Germany, arising from misunderstanding by either country of the conditions existing in the other, and acting upon the invitation of the German government, I sent to Berlin a commission composed of competent experts in the operation and administration of the customs tariff from the departments of the Treasury and Commerce and Labor. This commission was engaged for several months in conference, with a similar commission appointed by the German government, under instructions, so far as practicable, to reach a common understanding as to all the facts regarding the tariffs of the United States and Germany, material and relevant to the trade relations between the two countries. The commission reported, and upon the basis of the report, a further temporary commercial agreement was entered into by the two countries pursuant to which, in the exercise of the authority conferred upon the President by the third section of the Tariff Act of July 24, 1897, I extended the reduced tariffs provided for in that section to Champagne and all other sparkling wines, and pursuant to which the German conventional or minimum tariff rates were extended to about 96.5% of all the exports from the United States to Germany. This agreement is to remain in force until the 30th of June, 1908, and until six months after notice by either party to terminate it. The agreement and the report of the commission on which it is based will be laid before the Congress for its information. This careful examination into the tariff relations Between the United States and Germany, involved an inquiry into certain of our methods of administration, which had been the cause of much complaint on the part of German exporters. In this inquiry, I became satisfied that certain vicious and unjustifiable practices had grown up in our customs administration, notably the practice of determining values of imports upon detective reports never disclosed to the persons whose interests were affected. The use of detectives, though often necessary, tends towards abuse and should be carefully guarded. Under our practice, as I found it to exist in this case, the abuse had become gross and discreditable, Under it, instead of seeking information as to the market value of merchandise from the well-known and respected members of the commercial community in the country of its production, secret statements were obtained from informers and discharged employees and business rivals. And upon this kind of secret evidence, the values of imported goods were frequently raised and heavy penalties were frequently imposed upon importers who were never permitted to know what the evidence was and who never had an opportunity to meet it. It is quite probable that this system tended towards an increase of the duties collected upon imported goods, but I conceive it to be a violation of law to exact more duties than the law provides, just as it is a violation to admit goods upon the payment of less than the legal rate of duty. This practice was repugnant to the spirit of American law and to American sense of justice. In the judgment of the most competent experts of the Treasury Department and the Department of Commerce and Labor, it was wholly unnecessary for the due collection of the customs' revenues, and the attempt to defend it merely illustrates the demoralization which naturally follows from a long-continued course of reliance— upon such methods. I accordingly caused the regulations governing this branch of the Customs Service to be modified, so that values are determined upon a hearing, in which all the parties interested have an opportunity to be heard and to know the evidence against them. Moreover, our Treasury agents are accredited to the government of the country in which they seek information and in Germany received the assistance of the quasi-official chambers of commerce in determining the actual market value of goods, in accordance with what I am advised to be the true construction of the law. These changes of regulations were adopted to the removal of such manifest abuses that I have not felt that they ought to be confined to our relations with Germany.' and I have extended their operation to all other countries which have expressed a desire to enter into similar administrative relations. I ask for authority to reform the agreement with China, under which the indemnity of 1900 was fixed, by remitting and canceling the obligation of China for the payment of all that part of the stipulated indemnity which is in excess of the sum of $11,655,492, 69 cents, and interest at 4%. After the rescue of the foreign legations in Peking during the Boxer Troubles in 1900, the powers required from China the payment of equitable indemnities to the several nations, and the final protocol under which the troops were withdrawn— signed at Peking September 7th of 1901, fixed the amount of this indemnity allotted to the United States at over twenty millions of dollars, and China paid, up to and including the first day of June last, a little over six millions of dollars. It was the first intention of this government, at the proper time, when all claims had been presented and all expenses ascertained as fully as possible, to revise the estimates and account, and as a proof of sincere friendship for China, voluntarily to release that country from its legal liability for all payments in excess of the sum, which should prove to be necessary for actual indemnity to the United States and its citizens. The nation should help in every practicable way, in the education of the Chinese people, so that the vast and populous empire of China may gradually adapt itself to modern conditions. One way of doing this is by promoting the coming of Chinese students to this country, and making it attractive to them to take courses at our universities and higher educational institutions. Our educators should, so far as possible, take concerted action toward this end on the courteous invitation of the President of Mexico. The Secretary of State visited that country in September and October and was received everywhere with the greatest kindness and hospitality. He carried from the government of the United States to our southern neighbor a message of respect and goodwill, and of desire for better acquaintance and increasing friendship. The response from the government and the people of Mexico Was hearty and sincere. No pains were spared to manifest the most friendly attitude and feeling toward the United States. In view of the close neighborhood of the two countries, the relations which exist between Mexico and the United States are just cause for gratification. We have a common boundary of over 1,500 miles from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific. Much of it is marked only by the shifting waters of the Rio Grande. Many thousands of Mexicans are residing upon our side of the line, and it is estimated that over 40,000 Americans are resident in Mexican territory, and that American investments in Mexico amount to over $700 million. The extraordinary industrial and commercial prosperity of Mexico has been greatly promoted by American enterprise, and Americans are sharing largely in its results. The foreign trade of the Republic already exceeds 240 millions of dollars per annum, and of this, two-thirds, both of exports and imports, are exchanged with the United States. Under these circumstances, numerous questions necessarily arise between the two countries. These questions are always approached and disposed of in a spirit of mutual courtesy and fair dealing. Americans carrying on business in Mexico testify uniformly to the kindness and consideration with which they are treated and their sense of the security of their property and enterprises under the wise administration of the great statesman who has so long held the office of Chief Magistrate of that Republic. The two governments have been uniting their efforts for a considerable time past, to aid Central America in attaining the degree of peace and order which have made possible the prosperity of the northern ports of the continent. After the peace between Guatemala, Honduras, and Salvador, celebrated under the circumstances described in my last message, a new war broke out between the republics of Nicaragua, Honduras, and Salvador. The effort to compose this new difficulty— has resulted in the acceptance of the joint suggestion of the Presidents of Mexico and the United States for a general peace conference between all the countries of Central America. On the 17th day of September last, a protocol was signed between the representatives of the five Central American countries accredited to this government, agreeing upon a conference to be held In the city of Washington, in order to devise the means of preserving the good relations among said republics and bringing about permanent peace in those countries. The protocol includes the expression of a wish that the presidents of the United States and Mexico should appoint representatives to lend their good and impartial offices in a purely friendly way toward the realization of the objects of the conference. The conference is now in session and will have our best wishes and, where it is practicable, our friendly assistance. One of the results of the Pan-American Conference at Rio de Janeiro in the summer of 1906 has been a great increase in the activity and usefulness of the International Bureau of American Republics. That institution, which includes all the American republics in its membership and brings all their representatives together— Is doing a really valuable work in informing the people of the United States about the other republics and in making the United States known to them. Its action is now limited by appropriations determined when it was doing a work on a much smaller scale and rendering much less valuable service. I recommend that the contribution of this government to the expenses of the Bureau be made commensurate with its increased work. Theodore Roosevelt, December third, nineteen oh seven. End of section thirty.